0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. So, uh, here we are in August of 2008, and guess what? Today is my 66th birthday. So I first want to thank my mother and father, without whom uh, we obviously wouldn't all be together here in cyberdelic space today. And even though they are no longer here with us on this lovely little planet, I still feel their spirits touching me, and uh, for their love and all they did for me, I will remain forever grateful. But I have a question. Since uh, both of my parents have died, uh, does that make me an orphan? (laughs) Is there an age limit to orphanhood, or uh, do I still qualify? Okay, uh, I'll give up on my feeble attempts at humor and uh, get on with today's program. But uh, while I'm into thank yous, I also want to thank David A., who very kindly sent in a donation this week to help us out with the expenses associated with producing these podcasts. So thank you very much, David. Uh, it was very kind of you to help out. Well, it feels uh, like it's time to give Terrence McKenna's material a little rest and uh, give a listen to one of the other elders of our community, Timothy Leary. By the way, uh, just so you don't get into thinking that uh, I may also be an elder just because of my age, I should remind you that I'm uh, still just getting started and uh, have a long way to go toward elderhood. For example, uh, within a few weeks uh, this summer, Gary Fisher turned 77 and Myron Stolaroff turned 88. And uh, that's actually one of the reasons I so enjoy their company, because uh, <laughs> compared to them, I'm still a kid. Anyway, uh, I've been getting some feedback that tells me I've been playing too many Terrence McKenna talks without any breaks. Now, this will come as a surprise to uh, some of our fellow slawners. In fact, it was a surprise to me. But there is a sizable number of people who don't resonate at all with the good Bard McKenna. When I first uh, learned that interesting little fact, I just assumed that uh, they hadn't been around the tribe long enough to appreciate what he had to say. But last month, my friend Raphael spent a few days with us uh, while he was on a holiday away from his new home in Thailand. And I was shocked to learn that Raphael seldom listens to any of Terrence's talks. He just doesn't resonate with Raphael. And uh, since then, I I heard the dope fiend reading an email from another listener who uh, also doesn't groove on McKenna as well as uh, I've heard similar things from a number of other directions, and, and so I'm going to let Terrence rest a bit, and we'll uh, go on for a while without him. But uh, don't think I'm going to let you get away without hearing from another Irishman. Uh, <laughs> and you know who I'm talking about, the one and only Dr. Timothy Leary. I've got a couple of things that I want to mention about Dr. Leary, but uh, first I'd like to play another talk from the Leary Archive. This one uh, was recorded in 1987... ...and took place in Fort Worth, Texas. Having uh, lived for several years in Dallas, Texas myself, I, uh, I have a fairly good idea of what the vibe was like in that area back in the 80s. And I think that uh, red and screwed-down is one way to describe the good old boys who haunt the highways and byways of Texas. But uh, for this talk, I think the more conservative vibe of that area... Uh, may have acted like a steadying keel for Tim, and uh, he gave what I think is one of his best organized and interesting talks that I've heard anyway. So, uh, where were you in 1987, before the uh, falls of the Berlin Wall and Soviet Union? What were you doing during those last few years of the Cold War? And uh, how do you think that uh, you would have reacted then to what we're about to hear right now? On second thought, uh, (laughs) we'd better forget that question, because at least half of our fellow saloners were uh, quite young back then. Uh, Some were probably just learning to walk, and uh, many weren't even uh, born yet, probably. Uh, Nonetheless, uh, I think that the ideas Dr. Leary presents here are still very much worth considering uh, yet today. But I'll let you decide that for yourself, uh, since thinking for yourself is uh, actually the point of today's talk. (laughs) So now uh, here is Dr. Timothy Leary recommending to a 1987 Texas audience that they should question authority and think for themselves.
1: I'm very happy to be here. Uh, By the way, could I have the lights down a little so that I can see the audience more uh, clearly, please? Thank you. Um, I'm privileged to be here. This is, I won't say a hallucination come true, (laughs) but a very good dream come true. In the uh, uh, many ice ages ago, say in the 1960s, we coined many bumper stickers and wore many T-shirts to encourage us to go where human beings hadn't been for quite a while. And one of our bumper stickers was uh, Turn On, Tune In, Drop Out, which everybody misunderstood, including those of us that uh, originated it. Uh, But the general idea, as I remember, was that you would turn on, that means you would activate uh, circuits of your brain or areas of consciousness. We can debate the uh, terminology here, but, you know, turn on the illumination and the spirits and powers within. But tune in was equally necessary because it didn't do any good if you were turned on and, uh, you know, running around saying, wow, (laughs) listening to Beatles records. Tune in, Matt, you had to tune it back in. You had to to make visible, uh, tangible expressions of the divinity or the glory or the wonder or the horror or whatever it was that you had uh, experienced. So I would call this incredible territory here in the center of Fort Worth a a wonderful example of uh, seeking within some sort of inner vision that brought these wonderful people together and then making it happen because, you know, that's certainly I won't call it the bottom line of the 80s it's deeper than the bottom line that you've got to express it in your activities and your behavior and your creations. And uh, I congratulate uh, those of you who have made this happening, and I congratulate those of you in Fort Worth who share this uh, wonderful monument to the human spirit. Now, the title of my talk uses five wonderful red, white, and blue Yankee Doodle. Words that have been the guiding motto of my life. T-F-Y-Q-A. Think for yourself and question authority. Now, when I say question authority, don't get upset. I know this is 1987. and uh, I don't mean to rattle the, the establishment here. I mean simply that. Question authority. Ask authorities... Experts, uh, politicians, generals, uh, uh, ministers, ask them, hey, what's going on? Uh, uh, What are you trying to do? Now, uh, it's part of the realism of the 80s that uh, you know that much of the time authorities ain't going to answer your questions. They tend to um, discourage people asking questions. I should make a couple of other caveats here about thinking for yourself and questioning authority. <sighs> when I say think for yourself, I don't mean think selfishly for yourself. I mean uh, think independently. And when I say think for yourself, I don't mean that you have to come out with original innovative ideas, uh, 60 of them every minute. As a matter of fact, if you think for yourself and you get uh, you're really dedicated and responsible you know, and thorough in thinking for yourself, you know, nine times out of ten, you're going to agree with the old traditional ways. You know, uh, um, um, you know, um, honesty is the best policy, and uh, love thy neighbor, and uh, honor thy father and thy mother. Uh, never play poker with a guy named Doc. <laughs> or never shoot pool with someone who has uh, a name for, the name of the city for his first name. You know, they're... Uh, they're tried-and-true uh, traditional um, guideposts of human wisdom that have brought our species all the way in that lonely, lonely uh, period in the pre-Cambian slime four and a half billion years ago we started. So, thinking of yourself it doesn't mean you have to be a smart aleck and run around, you know, producing... Uh, uh. Now, my job, my task, my pleasure is to try to encourage you and empower you to think for yourself. Now, I have to encourage you first because we get a lot of discouragement when we try to think for ourselves. You well know that um, most authorities, most established, most of the people in charge of human societies uh, tend to really discourage you from thinking for yourself. Um, you know, who are you, kid, to you know, be you know what, what degree do you have, or uh, who nominated you the spokesman for wisdom? And uh, you know, uh, matter of fact, you can get in trouble if you think for yourself or think for yourself too publicly or loudly. I can testify, in my own personal experience that. Uh, <laughs> uh, as a matter of fact. I'd say in two-thirds of the countries today, perhaps uh, 75% of the human race lives in in countries under regimes which uh, absolutely totally forbid you from thinking for yourself I would, I would cite the fundamentalist uh, religious countries like Iran or uh, the uh, communist countries where anyone who thinks of themselves is called a hooligan I mean it's the worst crime against the Soviet Union or the socialist uh, workers order if you try to think for yourself I mean, come on it's all down there in the, in the book it's down there in, in that book that Allah wrote um, so uh, it's, it's it can become quite unpopular if you try to think for yourself now uh I can understand, too, why all of us, much of the time, can't be bothered thinking. It's hard to think for yourself. And also, let's face it, we're we're tribal animals, we're we're social animals, and uh, we all want social approval. And there is that wonderful feeling, that cozy, warm feeling of being in the herd, rubbing your woolly, warm bodies together, all trotting off to Nicaragua. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, you can't knock that. It's, it's, a, it's a basic uh, human animal instinct that goes back thousands of years. Um, to be a member of the hive and hear the mm, buzz of a million friendly brothers and sisters out there making honey for you. And uh, the tendency is just to sting to death any bee that comes along with some strange idea. <clears throat> you know, it's also, it, it is It's a tough thing to think. You have to wake up in the morning, and, you know, you you, you have to figure it all out. Uh, I can understand why people get discouraged. You know, there's a lot of things we don't know. Matter of fact, you know, some of the basic issues of human nature and how to get along together and how to stop war and why can't we live in peace and why can't we... You know, we don't know. There's a lot of mystery out there so that uh, you get... uh, you get discouraged, and I can see why people go down on their knees and and pray to some divine power to think for me, or people will get on their knees and, and take the good book that was written four or five thousand years and say, "Yeah, just uh, that's the manual. Uh, read it." Uh, uh, I can understand why. Uh, I think, uh, of course, I must say about thinking for yourself. Uh, I've gotten into a lot of trouble because you know trying to express thoughts because. There are certain things that become so obvious, and certain times society doesn't want to hear it. And you know, you, you know, you say, so you, you tend to want to talk louder, or you try to exaggerate. less. can't you see it? Come on, can't you see it? And then, uh, then that, particularly if you're Irish descent and have, you know, your forefathers have kissed the blarney stone, there's a tendency to, you know, to over, you know, you, you try to get people's attention to try to look at this new thing. So, uh, obviously. Uh, If you're going to think for yourself, uh, you you better learn how to think clearly. And that's the other part of the equation. Uh, I've been trying to give you the old pep talk, the locker room talk what there in the second half, kids, and and start thinking for yourself. (laughs) But, you know, it can be discouraging, it can be dangerous, and so it's my duty, too, uh, to... uh, Try to pass on some tips as to how to think for yourself, because you have to have that know-how. Just as uh, It doesn't do any good to uh, have wonderful visions unless you have the know-how to uh, make incredible ecological deserts in the middle of Fort Worth. uh, Know-how. Now, let's face it. uh, Our species, we have to be compassionate with each other, too. And the person who thinks for herself or himself... um, you know, has to have a sense of humility and of modesty and of relativity, because you have to realize that I'm thinking for myself, but hopefully you are too, and you're bound to come out with something a little different from me. So there has to be the ability to listen and a, a compassionate, you know, uh, plus the, the modesty. that No matter how smart we are, we, there's a lot we're not going to be able to figure out tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we're laughing together, because... Uh, uh, that's a key. Sense of humor is the key. And uh, that's Einsteinian relativity. You know, every, every, it all depends on your point of view. And as you move around, everyone's got a different point of view. You can look back at where you were yesterday and, and kind of laugh. That ability to laugh together uh, is, certainly goes along with the ability to think together. Well, um, let's talk a little bit about the technology of thinking. Now, I use the word technology of thinking because... Oh, by the way, you know, I'm going to try to strafe you and strobe you with a lot of interesting ideas, I hope interesting, new ideas, provocative ideas. Don't believe them. You know, I'm just trying to, you know, to get you thinking a little bit and get you to make me think back. Um, I'm going to pass on a, what I think are interesting points of view about the, how to think for yourself. At the present time, I define the the mental clearness and the intellectual performance uh, of a, an individual or of a society or of a species in terms of the technology that they use to think. Now, that may seem strange to me to talk about the technology of thinking. Thinking is such a psychological thing. It's something that you, almost like an instinct, you know, fish, and you're not supposed to think. But uh, think about this for a minute. Um, you know, in a way, you could say that the, the technology of thought is like the technology of travel. Now, if uh, there are lots of ways you can travel. The best, of course, the, one, the earliest, the first one we have to learn is on foot. You crawl and then you walk. And certainly uh, walking, jogging, running, dancing uh, is, are, are parts of our repertoire of how you want to travel. But then, of course, there's uh, the um, body-moved uh, bicycles, and uh, then you get... Uh, uh, automobiles and you get rockets and you get planes. There's a lot of ways to travel. And you can, you know, you can tell a lot about the, uh, the prosperity and success of, a, of an individual or of a country in terms of what technologies uh, do they have to travel. And the same thing is true, I submit to you, about the technologies of thought. Now we all start off, of course, with the basic technology of the vocal cords and the muscles. Uh, our species developed this uh, apparently as their first means of packaging thought, uh, defining thought, storing thought, remembering thought, communicating thought—the the vocal cords or maybe gestures—and as as individuals recapitulating the presumably the history of our race, we have gone through those same things. The first the first way we package and communicate thought with our parents is, of course, uh, oohs and ahs and, and, and gestures. Now. Every form of thinking and thought technology has its advantages and its disadvantages. And I'm not here to try to, it's not either or. One thing you know about relativity is never either or, it's both and and multiply by ten. And uh, if I praise one technology of of thought, by no means am I derogating or urging you to give up the other. The aim is to know what you're doing and to use the right way of packaging thought at the appropriate time. Now, the oral tradition, of course, it works wonders in a tribal situation, whether the sound of your voice, and it does come from the um, uh, earliest uh, moments of of human history. Uh, But when you think about it, the the, uh, vocal cords and gestures are not the best way to communicate highly complicated ideas. Basically, uh, oral tradition and gestures communicate emotions and they're very powerful techniques for communicating emotions because they, uh, they uh, uh, wake up and activate mid-brain circuits that we relied upon when we were back there in the caves and the hyenas out there and the lions and the, the head of the tribe would say, halt or jump, or, and you'd, we had to listen. And the, uh, the oral tradition is uh, is still wonderful still wonderful for communicating emotions and the little intimate, the tender, the private uh, things we want to communicate. uh, Do we want to whisper? So I'm not knocking the oral tradition, but I must say that the oral tradition being limited mainly to emotions does not basically encourage um, thinking for yourself. You'd be in a lot of trouble in the average tribe if you tried to, you know, Memory. The old person, the the, the tribal sage, was the one that saw the floods and the invasions and the plagues and the comings and goings of the generations and would pass on the word. And uh, young kids, of course, are not supposed to to, uh, get involved in that. Now, the next level of thinking and thought technology that, as individuals and as species, we have learned to master, is, of course, hand stuff, hand-operated uh, computers, uh, uh, the papyrus and the illuminated manuscripts. Now, as soon as the Babylonians and the Phoenicians started making little notations on clay tiles, uh, that changed society, it changed philosophy, it changed our definitions of uh, human nature, and that tends to be true. Anytime you introduce a new technology of thought Processing or thought communication, you change everything else. Now, what uh, this sort of stuff made possible was, of course, the uh, the feudal state, the kingdom, because the king could tell the scribes, and the scribes would send the messages out. And before the old uh, tribal, you know, guy could only shout uh, across the valley, but now, from Babylon and from Damascus and from uh, Egypt uh, and from Rome, uh, the um, the. Uh, and the popes and the kings and the sultans and the uh, emperors could uh, send their uh, messages out, and uh, lo and behold, a new society developed. Now, the uh, the feudal society and the feudal concept of human nature does not encourage thinking for yourself. Uh, basically, in a feudal society... Uh, Human, the average human being is a serf. God runs the whole thing. It's all hierarchy, and God has his agents, and um, he has uh, his messages. Uh, you can't mess around with those messages because you, you know, you're not in urge to go out there and start writing. To show you how, uh, how discouraging the feudal order was to, uh, uh, thinking for yourself, let me, uh, I could take from, say, the... Quran, or I could take from... I'll take the Bible. That's more familiar. Let's take the first chapter of Genesis in the Bible. It lays right out, openly. No fooling around. The theory of uh, thinking and thinking for yourself that's based uh, in that book. The way I'm paraphrasing here, uh, the first chapter of Genesis, God, who of course is a man, and a rather bad-tempered man when you think about it, (laughs) says... um, Hey, I, uh, I made the whole thing. I made the stars and the heavens and I made the planets and I made the earth and I made the waters and I made the land and the creepy crawly things. And uh, I made you, Adam, and I put you in the ultimate destination resort, boy. <laughs> Garden of Eden. Go for it, boy. You can do anything you want here. Uh, I've even made you an assistant. I put a rib out and gave you a helpmate. I forget her name, Eve or something. I forget, but uh, that's not important. So go for it. Do whatever you want. Except there are two food and drug regulations, boy. <laughs> you all see that tree over there? That's The, the fruit of that tree is a controlled substance. Y'all are forbidden under pain of immortal, mortal, eternal damnation to ingest in that because that free of knowledge. Right, huh? <laughs> well, you know what happened uh, when uh, God jumped in his squad car and went back to headquarters. Uh, it was Eve, oh yeah. It was Eve that caused all that. It was Eve that looked around and said, oh yeah, and uh, went over and looked at the tree and hmm, examined it and thinking for herself, took a bite and said, Adam, you got to try this. <laughs> Because it's true, the thinking for yourself can be, it's a great thrill, it's a great turn-on, it's a great joy, and you'll want to communicate it. You've got to have someone to communicate it and share it with. Uh, but, of course, that comes later in the, uh, in the story. Well, uh, I find it interesting that um, they lay the blame on Eve. Um, as you can gather from my comments so far, I'm not a great supporter and enthusiastic of fundamentalist religions. Uh, I'm very. I think I'm religious. I, I'm, I'm totally uh, committed to the notion of higher in, powers and higher intelligence and uh, and uh, that sort of thing. But I guess I, I guess Jerry Falwell would call me oh, the worst name in his book: a secular humanist. I, I won't cop a plea. I'll plead guilty. Yep, I'm... Uh, I, uh, I, I think everyone, of course, has their own definition of humanist. But to me, a humanist is um, someone who believes that human nature is basically good. And I do. Uh, granted, we got a long way to go, but I, I'm quite sure. I, I'm... I really want to believe and can give you a lot of evidence to prove why it's it's reasonable to assume that that, that human beings do have potential and that we can activate and we can learn how to become better people. And that, as a matter of fact, uh, most of the pre-Christian religions, uh, Hinduism and Buddhism, you know, tell us that uh, the aim of any life is to illuminate yourself or to, uh, through meditation or through any technique possible, uh, get to bring out your uh, higher intelligence. So I like those notions. Uh, I like the notion of uh, humanism because it means that all humans are kind of in it together. And uh, that makes sense to me. And uh, I like the idea of of, uh, humanism because uh, it implies some sort of progress. It's it's kind of an optimistic thing. You can do something about it. And it implies evolution, basically. So uh, uh, I'm uh, I'm proud to be a humanist. And I'm really pleased that uh, the first member of my species was a, a woman who had the courage to stand up on her feet and think for herself so uh, uh, <laughs> uh, we were talking about the oral tradition and then we talked about the uh, the um, tendency of um, um, technique of packaging thought in terms of uh, hand-operated uh, computers like illuminated manuscripts. See, the problem with uh, the illuminated manuscripts is that uh, only a special cadre of, of uh, computer hackers could do that. They were the monks up there, and the, the big mainframe was up there in the castle of the Duke or the Cardinal. Uh, and uh, we ordinary people didn't have access to the computers. But we had to have a security clearance, and the hackers knew the machine language, which was Latin. So... Uh, um, and uh, you weren't encouraged to change it. Matter of fact, if a scribe made a mistake or tried, to, even worse, deliberately change something, you get your hand lopped off, if not your head. Um, now, the the big, big liberating technology of thought and communication, of course, that created the modern world, happened in the year 1456 when Johann Gutenberg designed, invented, produced the the movable type printing press. Now, I'm sure when uh, when Johann did that, uh, top management, you know, kings and the popes, they said, oh, boy, that's wonderful. Uh, just as the, when the computer first came along, top management said, boy, this is wonderful. We're going to, it's gonna, certainly going to improve management to have a printing press around. Uh, there are four uses of the printing press. Four applications of the printing press. Uh, number one is telecommunications. We can send the edicts around the kingdom uh, very quickly. And uh, uh, two, it's for word processing. The scribes, you know, can do it much more efficiently. And uh, three, uh, it's uh, good for uh, processing numbers too. And we can send out the uh, budgets and uh, that sort of thing. And uh, and then for games too. The uh, the uh, one of the first, the second book ever trans- printed in the English language, of William Caxton, was. Uh, emmanuel how to play chess uh, for those of you that don't know what chess is it's an early form of pac-man uh... <laughs> now you know what happened of course and all the moralists said the same thing don't let your kid read it'll ruin her eyes they should be out there plowing or in the fields or like that um, and uh, if your kid le- reads a lot, they'll be alienated socially, uh, you know, uh, and uh, not true at all. As soon as you started reading, uh, uh, you know, you wanted to share it with someone. You ran over to the next cottage or the next home, and, and you were reading too. you tell me what you were doing. Uh, the uh, the marketeering people uh, were pretty down on uh, E. Butenberg. They said, Johann, we've done a an in-depth uh, marketing study of Europe and there's no market for a personal cheap home uh, rag and glue computer no one can read but you know what happened when it's steamboat time it steamboats and when it's backbone time it backbones and when it's reading time it's time for a new thought technology to take over it just sweeps everyone starts doing it once the hundred thousand monkey thing you know about that uh, within one generation there. Uh, One generation, there were thousands and thousands of printing presses. There was not one town or city in Europe that didn't have a printing press. And the printing press became the hub and the node of thinking and, and of course, of free thinking. Because once you had the printing press and the book, the home cheap micro book, you could read, but then you could write. So then you began, uh, that, that of course, started universal literacy. It started uh, freedom of thought. It started... uh, the industrial age, it started science, it started uh, the uh, rights of man, and uh, we didn't get to the rights of women until the 60s, uh, later. Uh, uh, it, uh, the printing press was the you know, the first mass-assembled object, probably, and it made possible the industrial society that we all live in and have uh, enjoyed so much. Um, <laughs> Well, I don't knock the industrial, you know, factory age. It certainly served its its purpose, and uh, uh, the benefits from it uh, will be, of course, um, in the information age, as you probably suspect, um, uh, there are no more workers. Nobody does any work. Under feudalism, you're a serf, and you obey. In the workers' paradises, uh, socialist paradises, um, and the industrial uh, countries, uh, you're a worker you 're a commissar, but in the industrial uh, the post industrial age in the information age uh, uh, work is done by uh, by robots and by computers and the idea that any any American or really any human being should be forced by economics forced to do work that be, can be done better by a machine or a, a computer is totally humiliating to or any concept of, of human dignity and worth. So in the, in the information age, you perform, you're a free agent, uh, uh, you may provide uh, services and that sort of thing, but you, don't, you simply don't work. Uh, the problem with this mass-assembled factory civilization was, and it's always true, we tend to define God and we defend, tend to define human virtue in terms of the technology we're using. Now, in the industrial age, a good person was someone who was prompt, reliable, dependable, productive, efficient, and replaceable. In other words, a good man or a good woman was someone who was a good appendage or cog in the, in the machinery. And uh, the, uh, if you're an assembly line, and uh, you, you can't encourage individual thinking. It'd be like a, a Cheech and Chong comedy. You know, we're in the assembly line. <laughs> you know, Cheech says to Chong, Hey, man, I'm going to go eat. Man, you can't eat. You have to wait until the until 12 o'clock to eat. Well, why? I'm hungry now. Well, <laughs> you eat when the bell rings. Oh, yeah.
2: <laughs>
1: well, I can go on with that comedy to get the point. The... Uh, The post-industrial society, which has been called the information society, you call it the communication society. In a sense, it's the psychological society or it's the thinking society. I think started uh, around uh, the turn of the century, and I see the the task for humanity in the this century as preparing ourselves to assume a new role. Almost as a new species of, 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 uh, of creature, creatures who, uh, who deal information. Now, um, yeah, I use the the. I call the. Uh, I'm not, by the way, to show you how you know how foolish one can get. I don't think in terms of decades anymore. I think in terms of centuries. A lot of fun. Uh, you know, we have got end of a century coming up in thirteen years. Countdown to. 21st century I like to think of the century we're in as the roaring 20s And it sure has been a wild ride. I've been around for most of it, and I'll tell you, there's no better time to have been alive, I think, than uh, this incredibly dynamic, explosive, uh, changing century. It started around the year 1900 when Einstein introduced the notions of relativity, and uh, quantum mechanics and quantum physics started telling us that um, actually all this solid matter and all this stuff and heavy you know, mechanical Newtonian force and momentum, all this stuff here is actually made up of, of clusters of off-on particles that, uh, you know, that keep, have a certain temporary form, but they keep changing all the time. Now, that's heavy duty. I mean, how can a member of the Victorian uh, period working, you know, in a factory, and then these crazy physicists uh, come around and say, it's all a dance of uh, off-on particles. Give me a break, uh, Albert. I mean, <laughs> uh, it's like a very bad acid trip, you know. Uh, and, you uh, no. I think that it was a task of uh, the intellectuals and the artists in the early 20th century to prepare our species uh, who just climbed out of feudalism and hunter-gatherer domestication of animal stuff, just learned how to put bolts on, on uh, Model T-4s. I think we've done that, yeah. Prepare this uh, lumbering, innocent, uh, rather young species for a... N- quantum, mechanical, uh, Heisenberg, indeterminacy, uh, Einsteinian relativity situation. Now, the way to start off, it's always the artist, by the way, I think, the artists and the entertainers and the writers and the musicians whose job it is to prepare uh, society in kind of a comfortable way for changes that otherwise uh, would be too frightening. You know, the turn of the century, there was this new art, expressionism, uh, post-expressionism, uh, cubism, where they were breaking down representational Newtonian uh, reality and showing it as shifting planes, impressionism, pointillism, you know, Surrah. They were actually using pixel, pixels, like a color TV screen, to represent reality. This, so finally, we got, uh, you know, surrealism. We got used to uh, watches bending in the middle, and um, <laughs> that was comforting. LAUGHTER Uh, (laughs) Radio, uh, literature, of course, uh, literature, the literature of the 20th century has been, again, a... uh uh, in this direction. Joyce, of course, was the, was the great, great pioneer in uh, 20th century quantum literature. <laughs> he, he did for words what uh, Mendev uh, did for uh, chemical elements and molecules. Uh, he just cut and sliced and put words together in five different ways. Joyce was not, I think, he was not a writer. He was a word processor. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, then, then that long tradition of, of, of Elliot and Pound and of cut-ups. And, and we owe a great uh, debt to uh, two great friends of uh, uh, the Caravan of Dreams, um, uh, Brian Geisen and William Burroughs. I think William Burroughs is one of your first people to speak here. Uh, I, I'm honored to be in the same uh, room where William's strode because... Uh, he and his partner, Brian Geisen, you know, showed us how to cut up words and take words from different uh, pieces of uh, literature and slice them and move them together and gave us courage to uh, to uh, move ideas around and move letters around and be creative so that uh, um, literature... Radio helped, too. Uh, you know, ra- radio convinced, you know, the farmer in, in Minnesota was suddenly uh, comfortably listening to... Mysterious, invisible, uh, they call them wireless, you know because they always the old uh, my mother uh, used to call the refrigerator an ice box, and my grandmother used to call the uh, an automobile the horseless carriage, you know so you always tend to uh, lay the values in the language uh, of the old on the on the new one um, <coughs> Radio when you have people listening to Amos and Andy and lowell thomas and uh, and the old uh, the uh, powerful, popular shows. It was comforting. I and mean, when you think about it, you know, it's all magic. Where's the coming from? It's coming all the way from the, the roof of the Pennsylvania Hotel in, in New York. Uh, but radio helped. Another group of uh, sound engineers uh, uh, Afro-American background helped a lot, too. I'm talking about jazz. Jazz just was absolutely the, came along in the 20s, just at that right time. What the jazz musicians did, of course, was to uh, take this symphonic Beethoven and all the marching bands of Sousa and made it spontaneous and made it innovative and made it improvisational and made it syncopated. And, boy, they made it dance just the way uh, Einstein's equations had reality dancing. Um, then movies came along. Oh, now that's fascinating. Suddenly, suddenly, people come to a room like this, and on a flat screen, there was a new reality. And, uh, you know, bought it right away. It was all an illusion. Your, your, your eye, you know, kind of makes up the missing links and so forth. And suddenly, you were accepting, in some ways, you know, uh, the great movie stars of the, of the 30s and 40s were more real than the neighbor next door. Uh, the, the. the we were comfortably accepting clusters and patterns of, of pixels and light waves reflected uh, on a screen. We were accepting that as reality. Uh, then, of course, and no accident, you know, I don't think that, uh, no accident that when Jobs and Wozniak in, in, in invented a home, personal, private, intimate microcomputer, they called it the Apple. In honor of Eve, I guess, huh? (laughs) (laughs) I've asked both jobs and Wozniak about that, I should say. St. Stephen the First and St. Stephen the Second. Uh, uh, They denied that they did that. (laughs) um, There's no accident that IBM, you know, uses that little Charlie Chaplin clown because uh, it's comforting. What's going to be more comforting than Charlie Chaplin on that screen, you know, uh, kind of doing these funny little things? Then, of course, television came along. Now, the point of the 20th century you'd argue is to get us to accept uh, knowledge um, processing and and the reality on screens. Now, you know, know, the idea one time that a book would be considered, you know, more real than life would be absurd, but now they talk about you. There are millions, hundreds of millions of people that believe that the book, this book, Karl Marx's uh, Das Kapital, or this book, the Bible or the Koran, is uh, more real than what you see with your own eyes. So... uh, (laughs) The screen, the notion that you, uh, you accept the screen as a very authentic uh, uh, form of knowledge, uh, was, was. who can deny that we're a screen species? Who can deny that um, the average American, I'm told, watches uh, television 7.4 hours a day? <laughs> now, they don't read books that much. They don't look into the eyes of their loved ones that much. Uh, uh, see, the average American, the screen is more real than... Uh, uh, may I submit as evidence the uh, amazing uh, Reagan administration phenomena uh, the final the final triumph of the uh, of the uh, of the boob tube now uh I'm going to try to wrap this up fairly quickly, because I really want to get into questions and answers and dialogue. I'd rather I want this to be a more interactive uh, uh, adventure for us. But uh, I'll just say a few, few words about the next step in, in, in human knowledge uh, processing and thinking and communicating with thought. Of course, the personal computer. Now, um, for a long time, in the 60s and 70s, I shared, perhaps with many of you, uh, 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 a revulsion. Of computer and the whole computer culture, I felt it was another trick on the part of top management to, you know, um, and make us feel more helpless as individuals. We've all had that feeling many times of standing in front of the airline clerk and, you know, you can't uh, see what she's got here. <laughs> you, know, you, you know you're gonna you're gonna be bumped for the airline, click 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 click, and there's your future, and you can't see it. <laughs> How about the bank clerk? Yeah, you're hoping your check was not going to bounce or, or the check they gave you. And then, and then. Yeah, the uh, just like the Vatican did with Gutenberg, top man. Or the other. four applications of a computer: uh, and word processing, database management, uh, spreadsheets, blah, 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 and games for the kiddies. Yeah, shoot, shoot 'em up games, getting ready for Nicaragua. That's right. Yeah. Never occurred to the Vatican and to the uh, kings of Europe in the uh, back then that um, that the printing press would explode democracy and literacy and uh, and it didn't occur to uh, you know Thomas Watson who started this you know, thing they called it can you believe they called the computer the, it's called the international business machine. <laughs> Now, it's not a machine. A machine is something, you know, gears over. It's not a machine. And the notion that uh, it's, it's mainly to be used for business is, uh, reflects naturally the, uh, the expectations of that time. I think in 1976, a great event happened. that was brought forth onto this planet and in, in, in our country. Uh, a... A great, great, liberating, mutational situation. It was born not in a manger but in a garage in Silicon Valley when Saint Stephen the First and Second gave us the personal computer. Uh, now the story of the personal computer is very interesting because the big companies could have made it. The DEC and IBM, but the last thing in the world would have occurred to a you know a guy who was running an international business machine or an infernal bureaucracy mechanism or. <laughs> home computer? What do you want a home computer for? You got a payroll. <laughs> We're going to keep it in the garage. <laughs> Get out of here. Uh, the computers, is basically, when you think about it, now, I admit, I'm a psychologist. I'm, I'm just fascinated by the mind. I always have been. I think that's the only game in town. So I've got a bias here. But to me, a, a computer is a thought processor. It, uh, you put numbers in there. It'll change your numbers and as if functions. And Lotus, one, two, three. You can magically you know, the same thing with your thoughts. You can put your thoughts in there. Uh, now, uh, the fact that people haven't done it, well, my gosh. You know, why haven't they used a personal computer? Why Why? Why isn't there one piece of software on the market right now for the personal computer that would interest or challenge a sophisticated, college-educated, book-reading adult? Why? Why? Well, hey, let's keep it together, lads. <laughs> the personal computer is only 10 years old. You know, I mean, it's a 10-year-old baby, so naturally the first thing we had pong and all that, and then... The <laughs> We had uh, Pac-Man running around, and then we had Donkey Kong and jumping. And we had Donkey Kong Jr. You're climbing up. We were, in a sense, um, the personal computer has, has recapitulated the history of human, you know, of you as a kid. So, uh, you have to wait till around uh, 14 or 15 years old before it really gets uh, X-rated, I guess. But um, uh, I was very pleased when Activision, uh, the company that I work with in California, came out with a computer program this year called The Leather Goddesses of Phobos. (laughs) I leave aside the sexual implications because... uh, But I I was pleased to see that this is a sign uh, that the nerds are getting interested in (laughs) (laughs) it. So maybe we'll really get some adult, mature stuff coming up. (laughs) Um, I, I think I've covered enough ground here. Uh... I'll say one more thing. I see the 20th century, the roaring 20s, as a uh, a preparation for the information age. We climbed from the water to the shoreline. There were, you know, thousands of physiological and... and, uh, uh, chemical and biochemical changes we had to make it 's it's been 's been a wild uh, century, and it 's a scary century because any time you, you, sh- you change things dramatically in a little boy, you better believe that the information age is going to change everything it 's scary, and everyone 's oh. securities are suddenly uh, uh, at stake and uh, that 's why I think we 've had this recent reversion into superstition into barbarous uh, you know, racism and uh, religious warfare. And, and tribal warfare is kind of a I think that's the last uh, gasp of, uh, of uh, I think we're going to be I think we're going to be moving ahead I'm really looking forward to the to the year 2000 the millennium thoughts boy they're very powerful uh, the last half of the 20th century is uh, the story of the baby boom generation and uh, how many of you in this room are between the ages of uh, 20 and 40 Could I have a show of hands
2: yeah <laughs> oh, okay
1: Hey, my job in the last 25 years. Matter of fact, my job, my job since the year 1946, when the baby boom, the baby was started in 1946, and the birth rate doubled for 18 years to 64. Now, those of you who know anything about demographics or human, you know, biology. <laughs> You just don't go around doubling birth rates. I mean, that's you know, that's that the unconscious decisions being made uh, by millions of boys and girls and men and women. Being just, uh, you just don't. And also, in all the industrial democracies, the birth rate had been going down. So they predicted after World War II maybe a little bump when Jia Joe comes back, but. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 they, we had every reason to expect it going down. Instead of 36 million, there are 76 million there. There are 40 million of you more than we expected. And you, were a, you were uninvited guests and very unexpected guests, and you were very lively. Um, you were the first post-Hiroshima generation, the first generation to uh, be grown up in the uh, smog and pollution of uh, nuclear uh, threat. Uh, after World War II the uh, you were the first electronic generation after world war II, all these wonderful electronic devices radar sonar the first analog computers were now available for civilian use from the time you guys the time you climbed out of the crib uh, you were inundated with electronic data you uh, sucked it from the tube and you peeped and wee-weed electronic data into your disposable diapers and uh you, uh... you you've been playing you've experienced when you were five years old You experience more information, more bits and bytes of information, more facts, more history, more geography, more... uh, You had a new religion. There's a new Bible just for you, boys and girls. (laughs) Your Bible was written in the year 1946 by a uh, Navy doctor named Dr. Benjamin Spock. And it was called The Common Sense Book of Baby and Child Care. And what Spock said was really amazing. Sp- now I'm paraphrasing Spock, but he said, "Treat your kids as individuals, <clears throat> and listen to them, interact with them, and feed them on demand. I mean, uh, when they're when they're hungry, feed them. Not when you, because you're not training them. See, Spock didn't realize that. But what he was telling uh, was, I, I was an absolute." gung-ho Spock parent. I had kids back then in the the late 40s and 50s, and we'd have the baby in one hand, and he would be reading Spock with the other hand. Spock kept saying. uh, Basically, Spock was telling us, when he said, feed them on demand, he was telling us, preparing us, to raise a generation of consumers. Uh, He was also saying... Preparing us, he didn't realize this, I'm sure, preparing for a new species. Never in history. It's one thing that all dictators, all religions, all tribes agreed on. You know, in feudalism, kids were considered to be um, like um, little animals. You know, you have to whack them and, you know, feed them and then domesticate them, basically. You could domesticate the <laughs> flocks that you domesticate. And then in, in the Industrial Age, uh, uh, kids were considered basically like colonial logs. You know, you had to kind of, you know, train them. Uh, now, Spock came with this amazing idea to uh, listen to kids. You know, became a menu-driven universe for a Spock kid. You don't realize how different it is. You know, because American industry was delighted because there were 40 million more consumers of you. So the whole country went on a binge of... of we, we doubled the baby diaper factories and the um, we doubled the primary schools and we doubled the uh, uh, high schools and we were there having a great time uh, giving you exactly what you wanted. Because you knew what you wanted, because you were spending hours in front of the boob tube. Remember? M-I-C-K-Y-M-O-U-S-E. Hey, Breakfast of Champions kid. Hey, uh, you're... Uh, you're the Pepsi generation. It was wonderful. Uh, it was wonderful. There's never been such cute kids as you were. <laughs> but the pudding hit the fan when you got into high school and college. Yeah, guys, uh, to our horror, we discovered that uh, <laughs> you were gonna, you want be, you're demand feeders. You're going to be demand breeders. And you wanted enriched uh, technicolor sex and technicolor uh, education. You didn't want any of those dumb black and white wars. Uh, in a way, you can say that Dr. Spock's book and that, uh, th- that psychology which was developed after World War II and the parents, we were basically training you to be Americans. Because at that moment, 1946, America was the greatest empire in all history. Like, remember the Romans, it's "Civis Romanus so I'm a, I'm a Roman citizen. That was a ticket to go anywhere through the world, civilized world. I'm an American baby, and my mudra is uh, flash the old I'm, We're number one, mom, and mom's cheering back. Go for it, kid. <laughs> <laughs> America's uh, by far. It was true. It was, a, it was a boy. That was a great culture in 1946. It was a, never had uh, soldiers been so really. Uh, the, the rape quotient of the American soldiers was less by far than any. Uh, uh, war in history, we're you know, we had a lot to be proud of then uh, until my life, of course. But then, uh, basically, what Spock was teaching us to do was to raise you, 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 raise you the way aristocrats had been raised in the past. See, aristocrats had to be trained to be consumers, and uh, arist- little aristocratic kids, uh, you know, uh, they uh. You get what you want. So basically, we had 76 million little aristocrats, entitled kids running around. You know, uh, Hey, you behaved just like aristocrats when you got into teenage. You, you weren't going to, you guys weren't going to settle down with a metal hat and a factory <laughs> like your daddy and your granddaddy and work for the union for 50 years. Uh, naturally, uh, like a aristocratic kids have always done in Europe and England. Uh, you want to experiment, free love, you get any dope you want, you screw anyone you want because you're entitled, right? I'm an American. was <laughs> a certain contempt for the law. <laughs> well, that goes with breeding. And, <laughs> and there was a uh, total contempt for the military. I mean, <laughs> so Children of aristocrats have than draft dodgers for years I mean, it was cute when this new uh, prince you know uh, said hell no he wouldn't go to the marines in England wasn't it amazing and 80% of the English people even though I backed him did you know that that's very interesting I like that uh, <laughs> if the time is here uh, how much time do I have it's now 9.10 20 minutes okay well I'll stop and we'll get into questions uh I'll say one more th- Oh, i got to tell you this. about. <laughs> There's 76 million of you. Now, you began in your teenages years uh, for it to swarm because all species, uh, social species, tend to swarm. You know, swallows swarm at sunrise they, to see how big you are. You swarmed at that, you know, just uh, 20 years ago this month uh, when Sgt. Pepper started to play in the first San Francisco uh, love-in. And all during the 60s and 70s, you were swarming Nixon was crouching in his bunkered White House looking out <laughs> at 400,000 of you in Washington. You were showing your numbers, and um, you uh, and give yourself some credit. You did stop the war. Nobody could believe that. You stopped the war. Kids, stop that war with the flowers in gun barrels. You know why? Because you knew the media tricks. You'd, you'd been watching the boob tube so long, you'd... Uh, you'd <laughs> Uh, 1968, believe it or not, you guys, and at that 68, you were, you were between the age of something like 10 and 20, or hardly any of you were could vote, you almost elected a president. Remember, you had kids going clean for Gene, although they couldn't even vote, Gene McCarthy, and then Bobby Kennedy, of all people, decided he's going to be a kid's candidate. And it was a, there was one moment when Kennedy won the uh, nomination, the... Uh, primary in, in, in June in California, for an hour there or two, it looked certain that Kennedy would get the Democrat nomination and beat that turkey Nixon up and down. The baby boomers, kids, the Mickey Mouse generation, would have elected a president, even though you can't vote. Well, Sirhan Sirhan with one bullet shot, stopped that. And then the 68 convention, uh, you got trampled by Mayor Daley's uh, police. But... 1972, you guys took over the Democratic Party You nominated, of all people, that ministerial, you know, white bread guy, George McGovern. Yeah. You lost that. You know why? Because you couldn't vote. But within one year, you had Nixon out of the White House, an incredible coup of media. When the, and when the, um, when the right-wing Republicans say, well, Nixon was railroaded by the media, in a way they're right, because uh, there's nothing wrong with that, because he got in through the media. But... Uh, uh, that's a pretty good track record. Uh, 1976, the baby boomers did elect a real honest to God, tousled head hippie, Jimmy Carter, running around <laughs> with his sleeping bags. Remember? <laughs> and he had uh, he was playing softball with Ralph Nader, and he had uh, Bob Dylan singing, and you know, and he he was talking about lust in his heart, and he's. <laughs> Marijuana was was legalized in 14 states. Not to mention uh, peace and love. My God, he did the unthinkable. He had, uh, you know, Israel and Egypt come over there and he just takes, give peace a chance, baby. Hey, 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 minimum. Hey, minimum. (laughs) All you need is love, uh, Anwar. Oh, yeah, okay. (laughs) they put a stop to that fast. I mean, there's one thing that every dictator, left and right wing in the world, could agree on with every religious leader in the world, and all the military and all the industrialists and the communists, too. One thing they all agreed on, this Carter ship's (laughs) got to stop. We'll all be out of a job. (laughs) So, anyway. uh, Okay. Now, remember, those of you born between the years 46 and 64, stretch it a little because you have a lot of... uh, now, I'm not saying you're all saints. There are just as many assholes among you, percentage-wise, as, uh, <laughs> as any other generation. But it's those experiences of childhood that are absolutely your imprints were laid down. Basically, you're the best educated, best by far ten times better educated than uh, any other generation in history. You're the most sophisticated. You're, remember, you're the first generation of the information electronic age. You're used to dialing and tuning realities. You're used to a menu-driven, gourmet approach to life. You're going to demand... You know, two or six or ten years, you're simply going to demand, you know, a, a good government. Uh, you're going, already all the statistics show you don't, you're not partisan. You don't believe in partisan politics. You're not Democrats or Republicans. Remember they say, the baby boomers are, t-. by the way, you've always, since 1960s, they've been giving you a bad rap all hate you because you're getting away with too much or you are anyway you're uh, they they suspect you and then even when you got down and started working hard they called you yuppies and said you were materialistic <laughs> can you imagine the moral <laughs> <laughs> and you want money ha <laughs> <laughs> ha uh, now uh the old guys and the, uh, the conservatives have been both left and right hate you because uh, they, they know you can't be trusted. You're not reliable. You're not committed. Committed to what? You're not committed to a bureaucracy. You're not committed to labor unions. Or to, you, you hold them all in contempt. Uh, uh, you're going to change politics. A so representational government will be changed. Uh, the average baby. I submit to you. Would you give $100 to Senator Helms or to tip O'Neill and send him across the street to buy you wine? <laughs> or or throw tickets to a movie? I mean, you wouldn't send those turkeys or something. <laughs> Would you send them to Washington to make your laws? I mean, give me a break. <laughs> so we're going to have a decentralized government. Uh, we're going to have a debureaucratization, it's gonna be televoting, you're gonna be voting uh, through computer networks and through telephones. That means you're gonna to have to take responsibility because see with oh yeah, nothing you say about your generation say, well the yuppies and the, the um, they're apathetic. Oh yeah, you're apathetic. Yeah you were kicking ass in the sixties now you're apathetic. now oh, that is such a crock. Listen, if you're a yuppie as I said, it's hard work to be a yuppie. You know the easy thing to do is to order um uh, uh a uh, double mac uh, fries and a diet Pepsi, see? But if you're a gourmet connoisseur, yuppie, you know, you're going to have to nine kinds of cheese and 13 kinds of of, uh, spices on your salad. It takes you a half hour just ordering a menu in a a restaurant, right? It's hard work to uh, be responsible for your body and your health and you think all these. It's not, uh, it's it's easier to just go along with the crowd uh, than to think for yourself or um, to be a connoisseur. So, anyway, I feel uh, it's my. My my sincere feeling that um, uh, your generation is going to take over, and when you do, I think you're more intelligent, you're more uh, realistic. God damn, you've been kicked around and had your heart broken so many times with Kennedy and King and Watergate and so forth, and uh, now Reagan. I mean, uh, you're uh, skeptical. You're tough as nails. You're not going to take no bullshit from any uh, demagogue. Uh, you're basically tolerant. I mean, you don't, uh, you don't go for the clichés and the rhetoric. But basically, it's, you believe in a live-and-let-live live world, and you're basically fair-minded. I think you're the greatest generation in history. And it's been my proud pleasure for the last 20, 25 years to be not your leader, because uh, don't follow leaders, watch your parking meters. Uh, you uh, <laughs> I have been proud to be your cheerleader for the last 20 years. And uh, I want to rave. Rah, rah, rah.
2: You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time.
0: I have to admit to being surprised at how well this talk holds up after more than 20 years. Say what you will about Timothy Leary, but uh, you can't say that he wasn't leading the way. And I'll be bringing you uh, more from Tim Leary in the months ahead. Thanks, uh, first of all, to Bruce Damer for putting me in contact with this material. But I'm sure that Bruce would agree with me that the lion's share of credit should go to Dennis Berry, a wonderful woman who has preserved and protected this amazing archive for so long now. As you know, uh, last year Dennis allowed me to spend an afternoon digging through box after box of uh, Dr. Leary's records, and it was uh, one of the most memorable afternoons of my life. Uh, I have to admit to being unexpectedly carried away by all of the fantastic material Tim saved, it is perhaps the most complete record of the psychedelic part of the 60s that's in existence. And for what it's worth, uh, the good Dr. Leary knew exactly how complete and important uh, an archive that it really is. Uh, I say this with great confidence because there's a, a video of Timothy Leary on YouTube in which he uh, goes out of his way to talk about this archive. And uh, rather than tell you what he says, uh, I'll instead place a link to that video uh, on the program notes to her today's podcast uh, in the event you'd like to hear his own take on this material but a big thank you to Bruce and Dennis for their help in getting this material out to a much larger audience think for yourself question authority I don't know if there is uh, any better advice one could give uh, other than the uh, proviso he added by also saying if you're going to think for yourself you gotta learn to think clearly And as we know, uh, that is uh, quite often more difficult than it sounds. But uh, one of our fellow saloners, who not only thinks very clearly, uh, also writes clearly. And it's my friend, uh, Erock X1, whose Guyan Botanicals website you can find uh, via the link on the Psychedelic Salon blog, which, uh, you know, is at psychedelicsalon.org. Recently, uh, Erock X1 uh, wrote an excellent essay about salvia divinorum. And uh, since he sells salvia on his website, he has become one of the uh, experts that journalists have been calling as the salvia debate heats up all around the world. So uh, a week or so ago, Iraq X1 posted a lengthy essay on his personal blog, which he titled A Case in Defense of Salvia Divinorum. And I'll post a link to it along with the uh, program notes for this podcast. Uh, but if you want to go there directly, just go to uh, erocx one dot blogspot.com and uh, search for the August 3rd 2008 postings. As he points out, uh, Salvia is an intelligent plant spirit, and uh, it even evaded the Inquisition. So, uh, thanks for keeping her spirit alive, uh, Erock X1, and uh, thanks for all the good work you are doing for our community. Some of the uh, other news from our fellow sloners includes a uh, YouTube music video titled tryptosane Dark Places." I've watched it a couple times now and uh, really enjoyed it. Uh, again, I'll uh, I'll link to it from the program notes, but if you uh, want to see what some of your fellow saloners are up to, uh, well, you might want to check that out too. Another thing uh, you might find worth your time is uh, to attend the Horizons Perspectives on Psychedelics conference that will uh, take place in New York City from September 19th to the 21st of this year. And that's uh, 2008, for those of you who aren't uh, paying attention to details like that. I received a note from uh, Kevin, who is one of the organizers of the event, and he tells me that uh, this is a community and volunteer-run non-profit event. Uh, and I notice the cost is uh, lower than anything I've seen lately. So uh, if you're in the area, you uh, really might want to stop by. I know that uh, Alex and Allison Gray will be speaking, uh, as will be Daniel Pinchbeck and the Shulgans, both uh, Ann and Sasha. So if you've never had a chance to experience these people in person, uh, you might want to stretch a little to make this conference, because you never know when the opportunity is going to pass your way again. And a big thank you uh, also to Kevin and to all of the other psychedelic conference and event producers around the world. Uh, Thanks for putting on events like this. I know from experience that this is a labor of love and uh, that an enormous amount of uh, time and work goes into putting these things on, not to mention the financial risk if uh, not enough people show up to support you. So if you find yourself anywhere uh, close to New York City this September, uh, well, you might want to stop by and uh, meet your next new best friend. Another announcement uh, of sorts, and uh, this is a repeat from a few podcasts back. And it pains me to say it, uh, but I'm not going to be able to make it to Burning Man this year. There are a lot of reasons uh, for this, uh, not the least of which is financial. However, uh, the big reason is that my wife and I were fortunate to be able to welcome a new grandchild to the world uh, a few days ago. And the truth is uh, that I don't want to miss any of her first few months of life. Uh, It's just so magical to watch these tiny little infants begin to develop their own personalities. And this will most likely be uh, my last chance to have this experience. So I'm uh, very regretfully passing on uh, the opportunity to go to Burning Man again this year. And what prompted me to mention this again is a message I received from a fellow saloner named Matt. And uh, here's part of what he had to say. Hey, Lorenzo, uh, I'm hoping you get this message in time for the burn. I have a question. I'm making patches to hand out as gifts on the playa, mostly text. And I'm wondering if you might have suggestions for any text. Any favorite McKenna quote that you think uh, needs to be propagated around the playa and the world. They can be as long as a page or as short as a few words. Give me some suggestions and I'll create the patches and see you with them on the playa. Well, Matt, I really wish I could be there to meet you and to get one of your patches. Uh, Maybe somebody will start a, a thread on one of the forums to collect pithy little McKenna sayings. The first one that comes to my mind is, keep the old faith and stay high. (laughs) I still smile every time I hear that one. Keep the old faith and stay high. That not only sounds great, it's also uh, good advice. I wish I had the time and energy to pass along all of the interesting things that come my way, but the truth is that I don't even have time to follow all of the links and other bits of news that come in every day. For example, uh, Mark sent me a series of links that sounded quite interesting, uh, but if I'm not careful, I could spend all day following them. Actually, I did get uh, to the first two, and they were really great. Uh, One was to mythicimagination.org, and the other is to a music video on YouTube featuring a performance by Fred Johnson and Michael Mead, which I also found to be very much worth my time to listen to more than once. And I'll post the uh, raw links uh, that he sent me uh, in the event you want to track them down yourself. But thanks for the links, Mark, and uh, thanks for being a part of the salon. Now, uh, let's see. What else do I want to mention today? Uh, Oh, yeah, I know. The Olympics. Now, don't get nervous. I'm not going to go on about sports right now. In fact, I've, I've got mixed feelings about the Olympics. I love the way that event inspires athletes to perform at their highest levels. But I really abhor all the nationalism involved. I'd much prefer to see an Olympics in which uh, no competitor's nationality was ever mentioned. Uh, But then, of course, (laughs) it wouldn't be the Olympics, would it? But what I feel compelled to mention today is uh, the opening ceremony of the Beijing Olympics this year. If you saw it, uh, you know what I'm talking about. And if you missed it, uh, there's simply no way that any description of that production can even come close to giving you a picture of it. I've been uh, around a bit and seen some interesting things in my life, but uh, never before have I witnessed such a magnificent human spectacle. And I want to go out of my way to compliment the people of China on what they have accomplished. Uh, To me, uh, the opening ceremony was a window into the potential, uh, not just of China, but of all of humanity. Uh, You know, building that stadium, coordinating 15,000 performers with clock-like precision, integrating the highest, the high-tech into a show that blended the ancient and the modern, well, <laughs> there just aren't enough superlatives in my vocabulary to uh, express what I'm feeling uh, even several days later now. I know that we have uh, a lot of fellow sloners who are Chinese. Uh, in fact, uh, of the more than 100 countries that these podcasts reach each week, China consistently remains in the top 10. So to all of the people of China, I send you my love and praise for showing the world what spectacular heights the human spirit is capable of reaching. Now, there are uh, two more quick things I want to mention before I go. The first is to uh, congratulate my friend Lefty, who just completed his first full year of podcasting from Lefty's Lounge each Friday at dopefiend.co.uk. And this isn't Lefty's first show, either. Uh, Before Lefty's Lounge, he was uh, podcasting story time with Lefty. And over the past few years, uh, he's contributed immensely to my own well-being by keeping me entertained with music, comedy, and uh, and his own great stories. (laughs) So congratulations, Lefty. Uh, I'm looking forward to many more years of The Lounge. And speaking of the Cannabis Podcast Network, uh, which is the dopefiend.co.uk family of podcasts, the other day I was listening to Dopecast number 136, I think it was, and uh, one of our fellow uh Michael, uh, I believe, uh, sent in a recording of the blues group he plays with. Uh, his group is called The Lowdown and can be found at myspace.com slash Having grown up listening to the blues on Chicago radio stations, I have to admit that Michael's band took me back to the time when I was uh, just getting into music, and uh, their cover of the old Muddy Waters song Champagne and Reefer uh, really took me back. Uh, Great music, you guys. Uh, I hope to hear you live someday. Well, this has uh, been a bit longer than I planned, but there is one last thing I want to mention it's a painting. One that uh, has already been sold, but uh, there's still an image of it on the web uh, that I hope is is there when you get around to checking it out. The artist's name is Leo Plaw, P-L-A-W, and his website is simply leoplaw.com. And when you go there right now, you'll see uh, a few thumbnail images of his work. And about the uh, third one down is titled, Ape to Angel. And uh, it has moved me perhaps more than uh, any other work of art I've seen. And I've been to some of the world's greatest art galleries. Uh, But art, uh, at least for me, is more uh, in my emotional response than in what my eye takes in. And this piece, for me, uh, well, it just takes my breath away. And the reason I think this uh, particular work uh, maybe strikes me so strongly is uh, because I've so many times heard the stories of uh, McKenna talking about apes coming down out of the trees, eating mushrooms for the first time, and thus uh, really taking the first steps to become human. I've never seen anything that better captures that moment, the very first moment when one of our very, very distant ancestors experienced in Theospace. For me... Leo's presentation of that moment is, uh, well, it's as good as it gets. Right now, I'm not even sure uh, where I found the link to his website, but I'm sure glad I did. Uh, he does some wonderful work, and uh, as you can tell, he certainly moved my soul. Well, that's about it for today, and uh, so I'll close once again by saying that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are available for your use uh, under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial share 3.0 License. And if you have any questions about that, just uh, click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And uh, that's also where you'll find the program notes for today's podcast. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic
2: Space. Be well, my friends. Hello, my name is Jim Gray, and I am a judge of the Superior Court in California and a former federal prosecutor in Los Angeles. I would like to talk to you for a moment about marijuana. Did you know that since the federal government first banned marijuana in 1937, usage in this country has actually gone up by about 4,000 percent? Or did you know that in the Netherlands, where adults are allowed to possess small amounts of marijuana and buy it from government-regulated businesses, fewer adults and fewer teenagers smoke marijuana than here in our country? or that an American is arrested on marijuana charges every 38 seconds. If you are wondering if any of this makes sense, you are not alone. To find out more, contact the Marijuana Policy Project at 1-877-JOIN-MPP or visit them on the web at mpp.org. Thank you and good luck to us all.